the simple celebrations of Christmas in Appalachia come from what was on the farm. What they could come up with from the cellar, what they could come up with off the farm, and it was really a time to pull out all the stops. But it was a big, big part of celebration at Christmas. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. Appalachia is home to countless unique traditions and customs. But have you ever simply wondered, why do we do the things we do? On this episode of Level Paths, Christmas in Appalachia. Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin are taking a look at a few Appalachian Christmas traditions. Here's Rex. Welcome to the Level Paths podcast. My name is Rex Howe. I'm the president of Tri-State Bible College. I'm here with my good friend and brother, Dr. J. Matt Shamblin, and we're here to talk about Christmas in Appalachia today, Matt. That's right, Rex. Uh, I look forward to this conversation. Appalachians celebrate Christmas in a uniquely Appalachian way. And we found this as we've done a little research, as we've talked to some older folks in Appalachia. And I think this is a significant discussion because it really reflects on how Appalachians celebrate Christmas today. Those roots help us understand who we are and help us understand uh, why we do what we do. A lot of the traditions that we have here in Appalachia around Christmas or Advent, they're very simple, aren't they? They absolutely are. And I think that's a great place to begin a discussion about Christmas in Appalachia. When you do some study on Appalachian Christmas, you recognize first off that Appalachians are traditionally poor people. When we go to the roots of Appalachia, the earliest settlers of Appalachia the European settlers, when they crossed the mountains, they crossed the mountains and struggled for survival. And so their celebration of things like Christmas are also a reflection of that simple celebration. The Christmas trees were not cut from Christmas farms. And of course, the earliest Appalachians didn't use fake Christmas trees that were pre-lit, but they rather would go on the farm somewhere on the hill and they'd cut a Christmas tree and if necessary, nail it to the wall uh, in order to make it stand up and then decorate it with things that they had around the house. Some would specifically grow corn that was designed for popping in order to string it and put it on the Christmas tree. Another element of that is that they would hang strips of paper, and those strips of paper often came from the Sears Roebuck catalog. The Sears catalog had a lot of different purposes in Appalachia, whether it be making paper mache for a star for the top of the tree or hanging those colorful strips of paper across the Christmas tree or used for the outhouse, but that's a different discussion for a different time. And so the trees in Appalachia were very simple. They were really rough by modern standards, but they reflect really a celebration that was centered on family, that was centered on community, that was surrounded by food and ultimately led to Jesus. So those celebrations are celebrations that were absolutely simple. There are some elements of American culture that we know came as a result of World War II. For example, some of the soldiers in World War II got a Hershey candy bar, a can of Coca-Cola, 
a packet of Pall Mall cigarettes and some other items and an orange. And I thought that a lot of what we celebrated in church, that idea, that paper sack with some nuts, a stick of hard candy, an orange or an apple, I thought that maybe that origin of that came from World War II, but finding a World War II veteran, one of the few that are left, I have one in my church, I sat down with him and had this discussion with him, and he said, no, he remembers those items being handed out during Christmas in that little paper sack before World War II, and I had that confirmed with another lady in the church. So I don't know. I I really don't know if that's a uniquely Appalachian tradition or not. I know it's very common in Appalachia. A lot of the churches thought they were the only ones doing it, but that's a really common thing. The one item that does seem to be consistent, and that's consistent not just with the folks that I've talked to and in memory, but also inconsistent in books like The Foxfire Christmas, is an orange. When you think about it, Oranges, obviously, are not found at home here in Appalachia, so apples were going to be a little more common, but even in the book Foxfire Christmas, you read about them savoring the orange and every part of the orange, taking time and then going in detail, talking about sucking the juice out of each slice of orange. So an orange would be unique to Appalachia, and that was a, a real treat when a kid would get an orange in that sack at Christmas in Appalachia. You're bringing back so many memories. Actually, things starting to make sense a little bit with my grandpa. It was such a great privilege for him to get out his pocket knife and to carve up an apple or open up an orange for us kids. It was like a special moment. I don't mean to exaggerate it, but I just remember as a kid feeling that this was odd, that he thought this was so important that we sit down and eat an apple or an orange together. Those things maybe being a bit rarer. Uh, what other family and community celebrations are unique at Christmas in Appalachia? Well, first, family is a big deal in Appalachia, especially early on in Appalachia with the earliest settlers. They depended very much on family and very much on community. When we celebrate Christmas in Appalachia, especially early, we would go to my one side of my grandparents on Christmas Eve and all of the family would be there and then go to the other side of the family on Christmas morning, the entirety of the family would be there. It was always a family celebration, a time to get together. Some Appalachians made a big, big deal out of the community, the role, and even pranks played on Christmas Eve, where they would go and shoot fireworks. They would arrive at someone's home on Christmas Eve, and I'm talking late, like midnight, to fire off the fireworks and shotguns, wake up the family, and the family was expected to host them. And and I think the family would expect that. And so they would open the doors and they would come in and have a community or a family celebration. And really, it would be pointing to the next day for Christmas. And so I think that the centrality of family, we know that family is a major element of Appalachian culture. Loyal Jones speaks about that in many of his books. And we see that, that issue, that major role of family. I mean, think about it. Dolly Parton is probably one of the most famous Appalachians. And she went back to her hometown and what really is adopted a theme park and invested in that community and gives back constantly. 
and is unabashed about her Appalachian roots. I mean, even writes songs, Coat of Many Colors, you know, all of those things. And it's all about family. She wanted to go back and help her family. And we see the reflection of that. And so family is not only central in Appalachian culture, but family is central in the celebration of Christmas in Appalachia. I know it absolutely my family. That's been the case. It never would ever occur to us to miss a holiday like Thanksgiving or Christmas. Thanksgiving or Christmas is a time to be with family in Appalachia. And that's just set in stone. So it comes from the earliest time in Appalachia, the survival of those within Appalachian has continued on. Well, at Thanksgiving, we're talking about who's hosting Christmas Eve. The conversation begins there and we plan from then until Christmas Eve. And now the other thing we want to talk about is food. We had things like shrimp and cocktail sauce. That's something we always had. Uh, A lot of finger foods at Christmas Eve, not a meal per se, but a lot of appetizers. What have you learned about the history of food in Appalachia? So food, again, in Appalachia really is a central part of the family, a central part of community. It was not always ham. Uh, A lot of times it was turkey, a turkey that was raised on the farm or chicken, chicken and dumplings. But really, it was pulling out all the stops. When we went to my grandparents' house on Sunday, we went every Sunday, my grandmother always put out a spread. It wasn't one or the other. It was always fried chicken, chicken and dumplings, green beans, corn. And there was even some of those items that we just looked at as delicious, and we didn't recognize that they have their roots that go back into the Depression era. For example, my grandmother would always make cream peas or cream corn, but it really is a technique to take a little bit of corn and stretch it out to feed a lot of people and take a little bit of peas and stretch it out to feed a lot of people. And so when my grandmother would cook for Christmas, there were always pies and fried pies and all kinds of candy and a turkey. I know at the marriage supper of the lamb, my mama is going to be making the dressing. I know that. Um, and so it was It was really a time to pull out all the stops because it was very much a time of celebration. It's time of celebration centered around the meal, time of celebration to centered around the family. What I have found, though, is different areas have foods that are unique to them. For example, in eastern Kentucky, there's a thing called cream candy. It's a candy that was pulled kind of like you would do a hard candy, but once it would set up, it's set up soft, almost has the consistency of those wedding mints, and it's a dying art to make this. Having a discussion with uh, some ladies in our church about cream candy, which I'd not had until I came to the to the area, I told them, oh, you can get that at the Jesse Stewart Foundation, one slice at a time. And they said, oh, honey, that stuff's old and dried out. You don't want that. And so my hope is that I'll get some cream candy for Christmas the way it's supposed to be. Other things like fudge, that's a big thing. But often the simple celebrations of Christmas in Appalachia come from what was on the farm, what they could come up with from the seller, what they could come up with off the farm. And it was really a time to pull out all the stops. Um, But it was a big, big part of celebration at Christmas. So we had appetizers on Christmas Eve, ham on Christmas Day, turkey was for Thanksgiving. You mentioned candy. I've forgotten. My grandparents did make a red hard candy that would pull in a like a baker sheet and then they crack it. 
and they sprinkle uh, confectioner's sugar on top. I forgot about that. That is bringing back the memory. Anything else that would be homemade? A lot of the earliest gifts were homemade. Remember, there wasn't ready access to to stores. If you did buy something, you were going to mail order it in uh, from, and this would have been later in Appalachia, but mail order it in from Sears. I mean, a lot of the homes, if you look across Appalachia, even in towns, a lot of the homes that you drive by every day are homes that came from the Sears Roebuck catalog. Those were mail order homes. Some of the nicest homes in the community came from the mail order catalog and they dropped them off along the rail lines when they were ordered. But I remember growing up, my dad had some leftover scrap wood and he made this truck and it had the wheels where he had installed some doors and cut out the holes. And he said to me, he said, these are a lot like my dad made me. Well, my dad was raised on a farm in Clay County, West Virginia, grew up on a farm that's removed from any major town. The bigger town would have been down the river to Clendenin, but that was quite a drive and it wasn't much. And heaven help you if you needed to go all the way to Charleston or Sutton or somewhere like that. But he he made this car and it called to his memory a truck that his dad had made him. And so a lot of the dolls were made. A lot of the quilts, my grandmother made quilts. They call these what they call now depression era quilts. But what she did was take worn out fabric, worn out pants, worn out shirts, cut them into squares, sewed them together and made quilts. They're beautiful quilts. And over the time, she would make a quilt for everyone in the family. I still have that. It's a cherished, cherished possession that I have today. So a lot of what went into the celebration of Christmas in Appalachia, whether it be the decorations on the tree, the food on the table, or the gifts under the tree, were homemade. And so each part of this really come from the farm, and it was used to really celebrate Christmas. My grandmother did this, what you're describing. She made a quill and she had as a goal throughout her life to make a quilt for every child, grandchild. And we have a couple of those here at our home. Wow. So many great memories. I'm thinking of my grandpa making carvings. He made Santa Claus carvings. He made these little lumberjack men. So the homemade gifts. Wow. That's a, that's a lost art, isn't it? It is. And the craft, the art that we find in Appalachia, even in the music, we're going to talk about Appalachian music in the upcoming days on our podcast. We're going to have Chosen Road on here, and I'm excited because they have great roots in Appalachian music, and I'm so excited. They're going to they're going to lead worship at our Appalachian ministry conference. They're going to do concerts for us here at Rose Hill Baptist Church, and I'm excited about that. But we're going to talk about the role, the key role of music in Appalachia, but you can find some of this Appalachian artwork, some of these things at the Tamarack, right in Beckley, West Virginia. Some of that is beyond what would have been from the early days of Appalachia, the artwork there, but it's still beautiful, and you can find some of this early stuff there as well. The Cultural Center in West Virginia, right there in the Capitol Complex in West Virginia, that's a worthy trip to go and see what they have there. You can see some of the earliest artwork, but yeah, homemade was a big, big part of early Appalachia Christmas celebration.
The second annual Appalachian Ministry Conference is April 25th at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio, fulfilling your ministry with hope in the darkness of Appalachia. The Appalachian Ministry Conference is a full day of breakout sessions, storytelling, Q&A sessions, and this year's keynote speaker is Dean Falks from LifePoint Church in Columbus, Ohio, with music from recording artist Chosen Road. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight. The Appalachian Ministry Conference, fulfilling your ministry with hope in the darkness of Appalachia, April 25th, 2023 at Tri-State Bible College. For more information, visit tsbc.edu. So we've talked about the simplicity, the family, the fellowship over meal, the homemade, the art, the craftsmanship of the gifts and decorations and so forth. Let's talk about the church now. We're concerned, Level Paths and Appalachian Ministry Institute and Tri-State Bible College about the mission of Christ. And we have ways of practicing Christmas traditions as the church here in Appalachia. But maybe not like everywhere else. For example, I I spent some time in Illinois pastoring with uh, people who would have been of Norwegian descent, and we practice Advent. Uh, We practice the lighting of the Advent candles, those candles representing hope, faith, and joy, and peace, and Christ. Tell us about some of these Appalachian church traditions that you found. So Appalachia is a much simpler culture and it's a culture that we really find that comes from a more emotionally driven, less high church background. And so you don't have the celebration of Advent, at least in that way. Because remember, the earliest churches, the churches that made the greatest impact in Appalachia did so in a more informal way, whether it be the Methodist from the circuit-riding preacher that was raised up from the community or the Baptist that came from the Sandy Creek vein of Baptist that's going to be more emotionally driven and, again, raised up preachers from the community and less of the influence that comes from the outside. And that really connects us to old Christmas. When the earliest settlers came into Appalachia from Europe, they crossed the mountains, they were unaware that in the late 1700s that the British Parliament voted to change the calendar from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And so when this happened, the dates for Christmas moved. The date of Christmas for many in Appalachia was on January the 6th. Well, within the Gregorian calendar, the date for the celebration of Christmas is December 25th. There's 12 days between the two. And so as you start to integrate the two, and that's what you find throughout Appalachia, the integration of cultures, whether it be the earliest Europeans crossing the mountains and being integrated into 
Indian tribes or this melting pot. That's a word that you, a phrase that you don't hear so much anymore. Really a melting pot of cultures within Appalachia, adopting different parts of that and kind of making them work. We even see that within our music, bluegrass music. The earliest development of the banjo, what we have today, finds its roots in Africa of all places. Who would have thought that that would be in Appalachia? And so, The decorating of the church was a big part because remember in Appalachia, the church functions not just as a religious center, but as a community center. And it's the place where the farmers and the people from rural communities come together. They may not come together in any other place in the community. Maybe their kids at school and if they're not taught at home and then they come together at church and so they decorate Together, they lean on one another, help one another, and that celebration became a 12-day celebration, 12 days of eating and shooting guns and, in some cases, drinking, because remember, some of the earliest settlers, the first thing that they built when they came to Appalachia was a still, and so they're putting all these things together, and then on the final day, and this becomes a big issue, the final day, January the 6th, It ends with a church service. There's a big question right now. This year, in 2022, Christmas is on Sunday. Lots of churches are canceling service on Christmas. And the earliest celebration in Appalachia, Old Christmas, January 6th, ends in a time of celebration, a church service at church. And you'd say, well, January 6th is not always on a Sunday, but that's where it would end. It would be in a, in a church service, those 12 days of Christmas. So that's the way that they would do it. So there's a lot of early celebration, but in Appalachia, you've got to know the celebration of Christmas is going to be simple. It's not going to be high church. It's going to be more emotionally driven. And we have to say, it's going to be about Jesus. They're simply going to preach Jesus to the best of their ability. Do you know what that church service on January 6th would have looked like? From the best that I can tell, it's going to be a service all about Jesus, going to lift up Jesus. It's ironic. It's going to end all of that time of celebration, and it included drinking, not in that church service. So maybe it was a time of repentance. I don't know. Uh, that that's a that's a really interesting question. My guess is the celebration of Christmas on that final day is going to be a celebration that reflects the community and the culture that influenced it. Because if you drive around Appalachia and you go to different churches, and I've had the privilege of preaching a lot of churches around Appalachia, depending on the origins of the people who built it results not only in the architecture, but also in the order of worship within the church. And you often hear, well, this is the way we've always done it. Nobody knows why they've always done it that way, but it's the way that they've always done it. So I'm going to guess it's going to be very influenced by the culture from which those earliest settlers came. Some of my earliest memories are kids' Christmas pageants, singing certain songs, certain hymns that were common to us, but and special to us. A lot of candle lights, but not uh, in an Advent sense, just candle light at a Sunday evening church service or Christmas Eve service. Just a wonderful memory of being with family, going home, and having an experience at church where the centrality of the birth of Christ was kept. So 1986, you're talking about the Christmas pageants. 1986, my family 
we really didn't attend church much growing up, but we at this time were attending the Sand Run Gospel Tabernacle right there on the Elk River in between Clinton and Elkview, West Virginia. And my brother was a part of a big Christmas pageant, and he had a role that I would have to say would be extremely culturally inappropriate today. I can remember the words that he said as he was running up the aisle of the church, and the setting was a plantation setting. So use your inappropriate cultural imagination of the role that he played. It was such a popular play, such a popular pageant, that they performed it in several of the Gospel Tabernacle churches. The Gospel Tabernacle Association was and still is a small denomination centered in and around the Charleston, West Virginia area. And we went to the Roxalana Gospel Tabernacle. They performed the pageant. And at the end of the pageant, their faithful pastor, Waitman Newhouse, got up. And he presented the gospel. He preached the cross. And he ended it with something like, this is how you repent and believe in Jesus, and this is how you avoid hell. And so his invitation was simple. If you don't want to go to hell, come forward. Well, I'm an eight-year-old boy, and I'm sitting there, and I'd seen this play many, many times, but I'd never heard the gospel presented as Waitman Newhouse presented it that day. And I knew I didn't want to go to hell. I knew I wanted to trust Jesus, but I also didn't want to go forward. And so on the way home, my parents at this point were divorcing. And on the way home, crossing the tracks in North Charleston, West Virginia, crossing from Dunbar into North Charleston, I asked my mom, I said, do you have to be in church to get saved? And she said, no. She said, you can get saved anywhere at any time. And driving down the road in that Dodge Aries K in 1986, my mother led me to repent of my sins and by faith trust in Jesus Christ to save me. And so at Christmas time, it's a special time because in 1986, as an eight-year-old boy, I came to faith in Christ as a result of a Christmas pageant. And so what an incredible time. Christmas is. Christmas is a time to remember what was. Christmas is a time to look to what the Lord has done to us. Christmas is a great time to trust in Jesus. Anytime is a great time to trust in Jesus, but that's one of my great memories of Christmas. My grandma, Christmas 1995, gave me my first King James Thomas Nelson study Bible, and I went to sleep many nights with that Bible on my chest, even before I knew Christ, really. It was that same year that she had told me that I was going to be a preacher. (laughs) So just an amazing heritage here of faith in the region. That's why we do what we do, Matt. We want level paths in the hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls in our area that they could see Jesus clearly. So we hope that uh, you'll continue listening to us in the new year. A very warm and Merry Christmas. We look forward to seeing you in the new year and hopefully seeing you at the Appalachian Ministry Conference on April 25th, 2023. And I'm sure that we will be talking more about that in the new year. Merry Christmas, Matt. Merry Christmas, Rex. You know, one thing Rex and Dr. Matt didn't mention was the weather. When you spend Christmas in Appalachia, there's a good chance it could be a white Christmas. That's all fine and good, of course, unless you're on the West Virginia Turnpike. If so, 
Be careful. And also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it as well. If there is someone you know in ministry who could make use of the content of the Level Paths podcast, definitely pass it along. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource, and no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri-State Bible College. You can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu, and you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamblin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email matt.shamblin at tsbc.edu. Well, whether your Christmas is white or rainy or sunny or too warm or too cold, our prayer here at Level Paths and the Appalachian Ministry Institute and Tri-State Bible College is that your Christmas is filled with family and the love of Jesus Christ. The Level Paths Podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.